back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I hope you're doing well. And just to say, if you don't know this, if this is your first time tuning in, this podcast is all about coaching and consciousness development. And today I'm going to be joined by Gaston Schmitz. He is one of the co-founders of the Asian Leadership Institute. And we're going to be talking about the work they, they do and particularly the work Gaston does. He focuses a lot of his time now on coaching founders of unicorns or billion dollar companies in India and Asia. And so, yeah, we're going to talk about what is the work that Gaston does. They talk about developing wisdom. We'll explore what does he mean by wisdom? How do they develop wisdom in the people they coach? Gaston will share why he loves coaching founders and the approach he takes and why they bring in this notion of vibration into the coaching, which has such a potent impact on the kinds of transformational work they can do. Now, let me just say a few more words about Gaston. Gaston is originally from the Netherlands and has worked in over 30 countries in a diverse range of industries and businesses. And he's been coaching now for about 10 years and is primarily focusing now on coaching founders. And he brings in a really strong background of spiritual practice, meditation practice into his work and into the coach trainings that the Asian Leadership Institute run. I just want to take a minute to tell you about the neuroscience of change. It's our live online coach training, which is enrolling now. And it's all about how do you apply the latest and the best insights from this field of neuroscience into the way we coach in a very practical way. Through decades of research, neuroscience can tell us what happens in the brain and body when different coaching techniques are used. And these discoveries are transforming the practice of coaching, even showing us why a number of our tried and true methods are actually not opening our clients to these states which are conducive to growth and change. So you'll learn about why some coaching techniques actually inhibit change. You'll learn how to guide yourself into a neural state most conducive to accessing deep intuition and clarity so you can bring this into the work that you do with your clients. And you'll get this big toolbox of techniques which are validated by neuroscientific research. Just to name some of the faculty, some of the world's leading faculty in this topic, Amanda Blake, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Dan Siegel, David Trelevin, Richard Biazis, and others. And the main part of this program is 15 live interactive video workshops where you'll see coaching demos, you can ask questions, you'll do exercises. Everything's recorded, downloadable. There are transcripts, workbooks. You get 22 CCEUs from the ICF and... If you would like to find out more, enrollment is open now until the 28th of September this year, 2022. You can head to coachesrising.com forward slash neuroscience of change. We've had well over 450 coaches join us so far. And one of the things participants in this program always say is they love this community feel, the support they get from coaches all around the world in this shared journey of growth and transformation. So I really hope you come and check this program out. And now it's time. Let's dive in to the podcast with Gaston Schmitz. So Gaston, yeah, it's really a pleasure to be with you today and have this conversation. How are you doing, first of all? Great to see you, Joel, again. How am I doing? I always try to answer that question uh, authentically. I feel uh, excited about this. I feel a little cold in my body. A little cold in my hands, and 
settling. That's the, the feeling that's present. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Is that something you invite in to your work as well? You're a coach. We're going to talk about your work today, but is that something you invite in when you're working with the leaders you coach? Yeah, that's a great Great point. Actually, I try, not with every client, but with most of my clients, I start with a minute of mindfulness on my coaching sessions. And I often joke with them because it's more for me than for them, I say, <laughs> because I'm context switching a lot from session to session, as many coaches are. And I've learned that one minute, often even the most adrenaline-fueled founders are able to take right one minute and so that's a great way to settle the energy in the call from both sides and get really present for the session uh yeah so i try to invite that yeah yeah it's a great way of modeling what you you know want to stand for and invite others into as well and you, you mentioned founders actually maybe it would be just interesting for you know a, a brief amount of time just for you to introduce yourself and what you do you know you you're working with the asian leadership institute and you could say a bit about them and the work they do and what you do yeah sure sure so the asian leadership institute has been around for 40 years so four decades i only joined them about 10 years ago so i um really that's when i started my one-on-one coaching adventure and um I've been based in Asia since actually 2008. I came back to Europe about two years ago. So currently I'm in Belgium from the Netherlands originally. And yeah, so the last decade been really dedicating my professional life to coaching. And that was traditionally multinationals, large corporates, doing leadership development, executive coaching. And then about four years ago, I discovered the tech startup founder market kind of serendipitously through a, a, a partner organization and quickly realized that that was a bit of my calling, if I may say, like I really resonated strongly working with younger tech founders, especially in India and Southeast Asia. And so within a couple of years, I scaled down all my multinational work or basically handed that over to my colleagues. And the last three years, I've been primarily uh, coaching founders in Asia, which is some of the most fulfilling work I've, I've done thus far, and never boring. <laughs> nice. Well, maybe, what, what is it that you love about it? You said it's feel like it's your calling. Like, what is it about founder coaching you that enlivens you? Yeah. I, uh, I've been asking myself that as well, and I'm, I'm discovering it more and more. But I think over the years, working with multinationals, large organizations is great. And I get incredibly fascinated by how people tick and why they behave a certain way and why their mindset is in a certain way and shifting that. So I get excited irrespective of which human being is in front of me. And I've also seen in some of these large organizations that you can really achieve particular transformation at the individual level through coaching, but they're still operating in that bigger system, which we 
we try to shift as well, right, through other programs, which we can talk more about later. But the moment I started working with these founders, there were a few aspects which made me so excited about this work. First of all, they're still young, right? So personality hasn't been completely developed in ways in which you like coach a 50, 60 year old executive. So they're young and still very moldable in a way, right? So you can get a lot of work done, so to say, in a short amount of time. But they're also incredibly receptive to coaching because if you look at, and these are mostly venture capital backed startups that need to scale as fast as their company, right? They're these founders, they just got a lot of money, they need to scale their business, but they also need to scale themselves. And they don't have the luxury of time. So they need to reinvent themselves. What one of my, um, my colleagues would, would say, a founder needs to roughly reinvent himself or herself every 18 months or so on that journey. And meaning really reinvent, right? So you have to let go of all these patterns and tendencies and things that brought you to success and then start practicing something radically different. From a coaching perspective, that's very exciting as a coach because now you have somebody who's still young and moldable that needs to reinvent himself or herself and doesn't have the luxury of time. And then the third thing, um, I think they just have a ton of energy. Joel, I think this is a bit of a selection bias, but generally entrepreneurs and founders, I don't know, I've rarely had a founder coaching conversation that is flat in terms of energy. These people bring so much passion and, and purpose as well, right? It's their company to conversations that there's a lot to work with at the energy level, right? So it's not... We've all had like coaches in, in multinational or clients in multinationals where sometimes there's a, you know, a bit of a depressed state or down or low energy, which is fine, right? That is also part of the experience. But um, these founders tend to have unlimited energy. And as a coach, I always laugh at my partner in the business, Brian, we kind of plug in from the side on that energy source as a coach, right? Because they have so much. Uh, drive and fuel. And so those are a few reasons why I love the work. Probably a last reason, Joe, I discovered recently is these founders rarely complain. They just don't complain. I've, I've never had an Indian founder that I coached um, really be disempowering to themselves and, and right blame and complain. They have by nature the sense of agency and and empowerment, which is just very nice to work with as a coach, right? So you don't need to get people through this whole shifting out of victim consciousness first. You can just get right into doing the work now. Do you think that's cultural to India? It's a good question, and I've been thinking about that. I think so. I mean, there, there are also flip sides. I mean, their work ethic in India is... is uh, unhealthy, let me put it that way. I mean, these, these guys are always on, right? It's, uh, it's unbelievable. But I think given their upbringing, they've learned, yeah, to be okay with very little, right? A lot of these founders, not all, right? But a lot of these founders came from very modest backgrounds. So they're incredibly 
um, grateful, I think, for the privileged position they're in. And so they don't fall quickly back into a complaining mindset, right? Yeah. Mm. I, I feel like we've got a lot to talk about with uh, coaching founders. And um, I also resonate with you there, you know, like the, the things that you feel called to coaching them. I'm just curious uh, if we like sort of, we'll probably, this will weave into the work you do with founders, but uh, and I read on your website, you like creating wise leaders. And that's something I've been reflecting a lot about recently through some of the people I am in dialogue with and follow. And this conversation that's brewing around, you know, how do we, how do we cultivate wisdom as opposed mm. to knowledge and information, you know, like where do we go? What, what are the places we go to? And I think coaches are very, in one way we might see that's what we do. We, we, we don't give people information. We help people cultivate wisdom. And so I'm just wondering what you feel is involved in the cultivation of wisdom. And just, just to add into that, you know, I know that yeah, it's the Asian, uh, the Asian Leadership Institute. And you, you also mentioned that, that you've drawn from the Asian wisdom traditions. And I'm, I'm wondering if you apply any of the, the insights or practices from those lineages in the cultivation of wisdom with the people you work with. Absolutely. Yeah, this is at the core of what we do. So we, we don't see ourselves as kind of a coaching company that helps leaders be better performers, right? That's not the game we're in. We're in the consciousness raising game. That's how we see ourselves. And from the beginning, right, even the work we did with multinationals, we're also very unapologetically open about this. Like we're, we're not here to help leaders get better at a few behaviors and become a more effective delegators and do this and that. And then our job is done. Now we're in the game of raising the consciousness of leaders. Well, what does that really mean? Right. And so that's our, our core purpose is to, and why leaders, maybe before I, I start talking about what that means, why leaders is because they have the biggest influence in today's world. Right. And why founders, because these founders are the leaders of the companies that will make the biggest impact for future generations. I mean, if you see what's coming out of Bangalore, Jakarta, or these kind of hubs for tech startups, these are the game-changing companies, right? More than 30 unicorns last year, more than, like, if we can shift consciousness of these founders, and therefore, their companies, which is still building culture and building the way they do business, it's one of the shortest paths to create a more conscious planet. That's, that's the game we're in. And we're very clear about where do we direct our efforts and we think. And we just have a unique exposure to the Asian market. I think we've learned how to tailor our approach to Asian leaders that we just focused on that market, not the US or Europe. Um, so what does that really mean, raising consciousness of leaders and founders? I think our approach is obviously what many of us, right, starting with ourselves and seeing what are actually our drivers, what gets us up in the morning and what's underneath the work that we're doing. And if there's can we move that from more a self-consciousness focus to a collective consciousness focus? And can we move from a fear-driven focus 
to much more of a genuine care, compassionate focus. And that expression manifests in very different ways for different founders, but that's the, the work that we're trying to do, right? And all the stuff that they're dealing with is just grist for the mill, right? We use those as inputs to helping those founders uh, become more conscious, become more aware, become more mindful, not just in terms of being more concentrated, right? I mean, it's, there's many different definitions of mindfulness, but, and I like, I like Sam Harris. I was doing uh, one of his sets yesterday and he talks about uh, dualistic mindfulness and non-dualistic mindfulness, which I kind of like, right? There's something around you can enhance your, your focus, right? And you can be more present, present moment awareness. But you can also look very deeply and have mindfulness that actually lets you realize that, yeah, it's not your show, essentially, right? You're not the star of the show. It's not about self-consciousness. I'm moving much more beyond that and leading from that place, right? Not from ego or insecurity or other forms and, and drivers. And that, that is our goal. Is like, how can we help these founders um, connect with purpose and connect with um, collective consciousness, right? Going beyond their own small sense of self. Because once they can plug into that, there's so much more energy source there. While a lot of the founders that we encounter now are still operating out of either insecurity, anxiety, adrenaline, um, other energy sources that are working to some extent that's often the problem right the energy anxiety cocktail right and 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 variations of that is working but the problem for these founders is at some stage they'll hit some wall right which is normally around their mid-30s where that's not enough anymore and so what we're trying to do in our work is help them make an inventory of what are their actual energy sources and how are they operating from a day-to-day on a day-to-day -day basis. And can we make that much more wholesome, sustainable, and also make it work for all the stakeholders in their life? And one of the big challenges, especially in India, is they just go overboard, right? They, they don't take care of themselves, their own health. They don't take care of their family enough uh, because they're so incredibly driven. And so that's, that's one of the pieces of the work that we do besides getting them just to become better leaders. Yeah. There's a lot in what you shared. And I'm just thinking of, um, yeah, one, one of the thing about younger leaders is they're, they're moldable or they're, they're energized and hungry and, and like that can often, like you're saying, maybe be kind of that, that energy is being drawn from a particular source, you know, of self and uh, what it means to be valuable or, or like who they should be in their lives. And so it's an interesting yeah. kind of, you know, dichotomy in a way. And, and so I'm, I'm like curious how, cause this is like deep work you're talking about, you know, and, and, and beautiful, like good for you. Like this move from being self-conscious to collective conscious and, being driven from fear to genuine care, um, you know, it goes right to the heart, perhaps, of how we perceive ourselves to be. Mm. And so, I'm just, I'm just curious, like, 
how you bring in that kind of journey uh, if i'm if i'm getting it right you know um with like the day-to-day demands per se of of like running a, a a startup you know and i can well imagine that that could be a very potent cocktail yeah. um yeah and yeah i could also imagine like wow that is um that's an that's an intense mix so yeah. how do you, how do you take that take them on that journey yeah yeah very well put and it's often there's all kinds of belief systems that they have right that success needs to come with struggle right especially in in india and southeast asia and that you know you combine that with an education system that is usually competitive thank you all the british for installing that in india but I don't know if you're somewhat familiar with, but all the tech entrepreneurs in India come from this school called IIT, the Indian Institute of Technology. And it's, it's insanely competitive, Joel. It's like, it's all about ranking, right? So many times when I first speak to a founder, I get some direct or indirect version of a rank in terms of how they did the universe. For, for us, as a, or for me as a Dutch person, I, I always have to kind of smile because it's very different culturally and I think in Western Europe, but they've learned and, and remember this is a huge country with so many people. So they all get raised by comparing themselves with others and standing out, right? So you have a societal consciousness that's all about competitiveness, comparing and standing out and therefore working incredibly hard, often coming from really low to low middle-class families that the whole family is all in for this particular person to get into a particular university and then obviously generate enough wealth to also support the family. So it's a very different setup than we have in Western Europe and still multi-generational families, right? In the same building often, a lot of my clients, they have their kids in their house, their parents in their house. It's like, and then, so I want to shape that context because why is this so important? Because they need to succeed. And the driver, and this is one of the key questions I always ask in my first conversation with founders is like, what gets you up in the morning? Like, what is actually your driver? What's your energy source? And also what keeps you up at night? Like those are two very simple questions, but you can go quite deep on these two questions to understand what's the driver, what's the purpose. And so that competitive piece is often part of it, but it's also making a big impact. I'm, what I really love about, especially the Indian ecosystem is they're often not driven by a personal desire for wealth. Which sometimes you get more in Silicon Valley, right? They just want to create particular financial freedom, which is fine. But in India, very often it's like, no, it's not about that because they've learned to deal with very basic conditions. I want to make a really big impact. I've got one life and I want to swing for defenses. I want to really make a big impact, right? Which is, um, which is quite exciting. But you put all of these pieces together and you get an operating system that's running on right now it's not good enough yet right so it's actually incredibly difficult for the clients that i've been coaching to feel contentment or to feel happiness or to feel even gratitude sometimes 
because they've always learned to still, you know, not good enough yet. Not, and I guess most human beings have that to some extent, but it's, it's more pronounced in this particular region. And so I'll give you one example, Joel. I'm just coaching a founder of a unicorn, which means it's over, it's valued at over $1 billion, extremely successful company. This guy is a rock star. I mean, he's an incredibly, superbly accomplished leader. And the main thing we've been working on is his inability to feel happy. I mean, from an outside perspective, even from his peers in, in the country, this guy is a rock star. He's like an example. He's a, he says, I just, because, you know, I invite people to practice, you know, happiness, and it's not just about getting better as leaders. And it's like, I find this so difficult. I just can't access happiness, right? And that's where the deep work starts. Like, why did that start? Well, and you know, you sometimes go the past, and he realized, I'm sharing this story because it can be representative. His parents wouldn't give him that much love when he grew up because they were afraid that he would get spoiled, right? And become not driven by the desire to be, you know, a great entrepreneur or successful, whatever, right? And so we were exploring this whole thing in the coaching, right? And all its shapes and forms. And then he says, I decided, he decided to have a really deep conversation with his parents. And his parents were like, yeah, but it worked. Our strategy worked. You became an incredibly successful entrepreneur. That's in all the media and in this whole, you know. And he says, yeah, but I, it's extremely hard for me now to feel happy, even though I have all these conditions, right? And it's all this... And for me, it was quite interesting to see because it's really hard to shift that patterning later on in your life, right? So now we're doing the real work, right? So now he's trying to savor the wins, right? There's a lot of fear of contentment in a lot of leaders, by the way, right? Most of us don't give ourselves permission to be happy, right? We can complain about we're feeling unhappy, but it's often because we are scared of feeling content because then... I might lose my edge, right? I might lose my edge. If I like relax and just connect with all the conditions that are already there for happiness, I might lose my edge. And yeah, so this becomes this, this ongoing cycle. So he's trying to be quite bold in actually feeling gratitude and feeling happiness now. And it's a big game changer for him. So yes, I, I helped him become a, a, a better leader in certain aspects. But the real transformation part was he now can access happiness bit by bit and gradually, and gradually help his parents in that process as well. Right? So I don't know if that helps, but this was one story that came to mind. Yeah, it's really helpful. Um, what I find fascinating about this is like, you know, looking at it from, from a kind of, uh, macro scale and a micro scale as well, you know, like, cause so, in a sense, like so many of us are driven by these inherited ideas about who we should be and what being successful is like myself at the moment, I'm also in a deep inquiry around contentment, mm. you know, like on, like, what is it to be fundamentally content? Not, not in a way that excludes any sense of ever feeling pain or distress inclusive of that, but 
because it's been so hardwired into my system, you know, and it and it drives me in some way. And and so, you know, I'm thinking about this on the level of like the need for the profound shifts in the way we we collaborate and live in in um we thrive on this planet with with this planet i should say not on this planet but with this planet and that you know you've got these like unicorns these businesses that are scaling so fast that can, can have tremendous impact and yet if they're driven by founders who are who are like driven on like win lose metrics and how can we beat the competition um, and extract, you know, and as much kind of capital as we can in short space of time. That doesn't seem to be the the, the optimal, um, you know, metrics upon which that shift is going to happen. And yeah. you know, and this is where I'm coming back to you. It's like it's fascinating that you know you're coaching someone who's become successful because of those, yeah. <laughs> like you know, his parents instilled that drive into him. And yet, you know what's going to happen to him as a leader and the way he runs his company as he begins to transform or or recognize these deep beliefs that have had a, a a grip on him and and don't allow him to feel happy you know what what's going to happen to the competitiveness in you know in air quotes of his of his business and so yeah. i find that the you know i'm thinking a lot about this transition right now of like do we just play business as usual? Do we just coach people inside of the same paradigm uh, that, that we've we've inherited? You know, which is one which is probably going to fuck up the the future. Know. It's going to yep. close yep. down a lot of futures. Or do we do we have a role to play as provocateurs in some way? And not, you know, we have to have one foot in the conventional world. Otherwise, people are just not going to engage with this. So, any anything you want to reflect on that? And you know, yeah. So Absolutely. Yeah. And then for us, it's because you can get to success in different ways, right? So we talk a lot in our work, we talk a lot about the vibration. With which vibration are you leading from? And we use a very simple terminology. Is it expanded or is it contracted? Right? Expanded is are you leading from a vibration that is open, receptive, non-attached to outcome, right? Which a lot of Indians know about because of the Bhagavad Gita, right? One of the key lessons in the Bhagavad Gita is non-attachment to outcome. But a lot of the founders don't necessarily practice that. But that's, those are more expanded states, right? Purpose is an expanded vibration. Or are you leading from contraction, right? Which is more the, obviously, also representative for nervous system, right? Sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. But the contracted states is from a place of fear, insecurity, adrenaline, anxiety, um, attachment to outcome, must have, must do right, trying to control. And so we monitor a lot these clients in terms of, are you operating from a place of expansion or contraction? And people like this language because there's no baggage to it, right? It's not, and, and by the way, contracted is not bad. It's like a flower, right? Also expands and contracts. But you need to know what vibration you want to adopt as you go into a conversation, as you make an important business decision. Is that from a place of contraction or expansion? And if you notice that you're contracted, it's okay. You don't need to shake it off directly, but you need to know that you're in that place and that it's probably not a great place to make big decisions. So it's, but it's okay to be contracted. Sometimes we need to be contracted, right? 
adrenaline flows and we might need to get ready for fight or flight or whatever it is. But we try to help our clients to operate much more in that expanded open place. And yeah, that is the, the crucial, crucial shift. And so from the outside, you sometimes don't see a successful leader, whether they got to success through expansion or contraction. Because contraction is still an energy source. I mean, you can run an entire company based on contracted energy, fear-based energy, and you actually can get somewhere because it's still energy. But there's a big difference, Joel. If you're a leader and you got to your success through contracted energy, you will not feel content when you get there because everything is driven through the scarcity mindset, right? And it's, um, but if you got to that place from an expanded state, you can actually savor that success. You can feel content, you can feel fulfilled. And from that place, you might decide to hook into a new aspiration or purpose to make an even bigger impact. But that's not because it's not good enough yet. Right? So contentment can still be a, a good foundation for the next step. But that requires mindfulness and intention because everything around us is geared towards more contracted energy sources. They, they did a fascinating research, Joel, where they looked at senior executives when they achieve a certain milestone, right? So they achieve say quarterly numbers or a particular, how long did they stay in the feeling of, fulfillment or satisfaction take a guess i'm guessing it's like 30 seconds or something like that yeah it was actually five to seven seconds right oh my god yeah that's that's kind of most executive that's what they get right so you get this the feeling right they might still talk about their achievement but five to seven seconds this is, it's also not enough to have any meaningful impact on the neurobiology of your brain, right? You need to hold at least a, a brain state for at least 30 seconds to have any meaningful impact on neuroplasticity. And so, so then why do we do all of this, right? I don't often ask leaders like, so what, you now became a unicorn and you haven't even like stopped and allowed yourself or give yourself the permission to actually soak it in. And that doesn't have to be from ego by the way. It's not like, oh, look at me, what I did. You can also really let it in by thanking all the teachers, the friends, everyone that helped you get to that place, right? So it's a very selfless way of savoring the success, right? So this can be completely egoless, right, to let that in. But that is something most, yeah, most of us don't learn. Yeah. Um, I, I really like this because it also invites us into, you know, a kind of attunement to our state. Yeah, this like vibration. Do you uh, do you find that then people engage in a kind of mindfulness uh, practice that become more aware of that state? And and then I'm just curious, like, what you invite people? How how might they, um, you know? change states yeah that's what i'm yeah. wondering because I, yeah. I think this is one of the practices of our times isn't it to recognize yeah. that place yeah great question yeah so i mean i already mentioned right most of my coaching sessions i start with a minute of mindful breathing and then the second thing i do is we call it internal weather report 
So it's kind of a light way of saying like, and I normally say in a few words, what's your physical, mental, emotional state at this moment? I said, I'm not interested in stories. I don't even need to know what you did during the day or some wins or, I just wanted to describe in a few words your state at the moment as you enter this call. And this is extremely difficult for a lot of leaders to do. They often go and it's like, yeah, I'm good. I could, well, good, good's not really a feeling, right? Just give me a, uh, yeah, I mean, I had a good morning. I kind of did this. Uh, okay, so there's a bit of, you know, educational component to it before they get it. But I normally I say, I can even say like three to five words. Just pinpoint, right? To avoid that they go into storytelling. And they might say, ah, actually, I feel, I feel anxious. Feel overwhelmed. Um, yeah, and I feel tired. Often I get some version of that, right? Now you're like less than five minutes into the call. You took a minute of mindful breathing, which, by the way, really enables that second piece to be more authentic, right? Because if you just start with saying, Joel, what's your internal weather report on coming on the call? Most of us give a conditioned response, right? Conditioned question, how are you? Conditioned response, I'm fine, not too bad, I'm okay. So we want to disrupt that and start our sessions authentically as much as possible. So the minute of mindful breathing, internal weather report, no long stories, 30 seconds should be enough. And then very often uh, as a coach, you can, uh, you can share your perception because often that's not really what you're picking up from them, right? So they might say, I'm good, life is okay. It's fine. Well, it doesn't feel like that, right? So this is the first opportunity to feedback the vibration that we're picking up from our client. And now you can have a meaningful conversation. We don't need to guess right, by the way, but we can just share. I said, listen, I'm actually picking up something different from you than, good. oh, yeah, well, maybe this and that. And again, this is, so a lot of our coaching is about feeding back vibration that we're picking up from them but they are not being aware of, right? So a big part of our coach training is making sure that we become as open and receptive to pick up vibrations and then feed those back without being attached, without being attached to being right. Does that make sense? And so yeah, yeah. people talk about things and we say, wow, it's interesting. I'm picking up some doubt there as you talk about that issue or, can sense a bit of anxiety around that. Or, or once we introduce that language of expansion and contraction, I can say, wow, I could pick up some contraction as you were talking about that person. The nice thing about expansion and contraction, Joel, is you don't need to guess right in terms of the word. And many times it doesn't even matter exactly what they're feeling. It's a mixed bag anyway. It's never a single feeling. And it's moving all the time anyway, right? <laughs> what we're feeling, right? The vibration, the frequency is always a mixed bag and it's in movement and flux. But me just saying, wow, I could sense your vibration shifts a bit more contracted there. Would that be, did you notice that as well? That is enough to bring the conversation back to what's really happening 
rather than the intellectual conversation. Uh, I, I love you bringing this in. Uh, I think this is like such a, you know, it's bringing for me the coaching into the transformational arena. You know, it's a mm. transformational encounter in the moment, you know, where the client is getting in the moment feedback uh, the, uh, of how, how they're being perceived, which, you know, the coach isn't holding on to as that's how, who you are, but it's, it's helping them attune to themselves to develop this kind of um, mindful self-awareness and which then allows for a shift to begin to take place. And I'm curious for you, you know, like w where that shift, because I've explored this a lot and it, and it often seems it's like it maybe feeds into what you were saying around being self-conscious and moving out of that where um, there's not, it's not advisable to then judge oneself for being contracted. It's actually, there's a kind of um, embrace that can take place, a, a, a compassionate embrace once one recognizes one's state yeah. and that, that that in itself has a, has a transformative kind of intelligence to it that that isn't then governed by the 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 maybe the the more egoic aspect of a client you know which wants to control who they are how they show up in the moment so do you feel that that have i, have I got that right yeah. in how yeah absolutely yeah yeah and that that compassion piece which is another big part of our our coach training is this yeah non-judgmental holding uh and them feeling that, right? That they can also, and it's fine. It can be contracted. They can be contracted the rest of the call. It's fine, right? But it's, it's not about we need to shift this. But um, for many of these founders, and they're always on, right? And they're always there presenting themselves as a certain persona. So that, that one hour or 90 minutes of coaching session where they can just be whoever they are, including their contraction, and feeling that compassion is tremendous for them. So I don't think our, our impact on coaching is because we're the, the smartest people in the room around how to do certain leadership moves at a Series B company, et cetera. No, the feedback we often get is the moment that we speak to you or one of your colleagues, um, the rest of the day is just feels different. I make wiser decisions, I'm more expanded, less judgmental. Sometimes I say, can I just speak with you every Friday evening before the weekend? Because then, and it's not because I say, you know, incredibly smart things, but it's because the feel that we create, right, is one of non-judgmental compassion, holding, I mean, challenging as well, right? But it's, uh, they can be fully themselves. And I think, what is interesting, Joel, is I think a lot of them enjoy that it's not with somebody in India as well. This is one aspect because mm, they interesting. Uh, yeah. because it's this random guy who's sitting in Brussels who actually I can be completely myself with, but I know that I can be open with because that is information is also not going anywhere. So India and also Southeast Asia has a real culture of Gossip is not the right word, but people share a lot of things with each other, right? There's these, these ecosystems and things travel a lot. And so that makes a lot of founders in particular hesitant to truly open up with people in that ecosystem. I think the media plays a role in that, a big role. 
And so we realize that there's this whole benefit of not being directly involved in their world that really allows them to be much more vulnerable. But that's the, I mean, that's the, yeah, that's the thing we try our coaches to access, that space where, um, yeah, they can, these clients can show up in whatever way they want. Um, They're fully accepted, loved, uh, embraced for who they are and create the right vibration for the, the insight and transformation to happen. So I know you've been looking for coaches recently, particularly coaches based in in Asia. And uh, in a way, you're speaking to the kind of coach that you're looking for. But could you say a little bit more about, um, um, yeah, like what what is it you look for in a in a coach? Yeah, thank you. Um, let me maybe let me illustrate it with my own experience because when yeah. I joined, I mean, I have to. I, I, I bow in gratitude to my mentor, coach, teacher, a guy called Brian Bowerly, an American psychotherapist who set up the Asian Leadership Institute 40 years ago. He was also a Buddhist monk for five years in Tibet and, and Thailand. And when I first started kind of apprenticing in terms of coaching for him, I had already a, a established mindfulness practice. I've been in Thich Nhat Hanh, like, Plum Village tradition for over 18 years now. And so I had some mindfulness practice. And Brian, when I started coaching, he would never give me tools. Like I would start coaching. I said, well, no, Brian, can you give me some, some form, right? Like how do I start conversation? What's the process? Can you give me some tools to use with clients? I said, no, 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 no. You have your mindfulness practice. Be fully present. Be fully present with your client and start developing your intuition. The right things will come up. And that was pretty scary for me, right? I didn't have a lot of coaching experience. And he's like basically throwing me in the deep end without too much form. And until the day today, Joel, I'm eternally grateful for him for having done that. Because I just had to rely on my own presence and picking up vibration from my clients and working with that without any tools or inputs or, Joel, today we're going to do this exercise or this coaching exercise or some set process, right? And so eventually I learned all kinds of tools, of course, to reinforce that. But the foundation was one where I didn't have form, just me, the client, and our our vibrations, basically, and my mindfulness presence. So back to your question, what are we looking for in coaches? is coaches that are much more intuitive in that aspect, not too reliant on any formulas or tools or form. And yeah, coaches that where we don't need to do too much unlearning, <laughs> to be frank, and that are willing to dance in the moment, right? And that are willing to um, bring the right vibration to these conversations. And Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we call it intuitive coaching. I mean, I'm sure many other schools call it also intuitive coaching, but there are different layers in our coach training where we try to access certain absorption states with our clients where there's less and less self involved. Very interesting. Yeah, tell me about that. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is partially coming from Brian. I mean, he was 
uh, it was a Vipassana teacher for many years. Um, he did a lot of the work with the jhanas, right? The deep concentration states. I come more from that Zen tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, And so we, uh, back to your question on the Asian wisdom traditions, I think a lot of our coaching philosophy is informed by both those Zen traditions of Thich Nhat Hanh as well as Vipassana. And ideally you want to get into a state where you're a client where there's less and less Gaston present, right? It's not all the time, right? We're not enlightened beings where we can just, but if I get so absorbed in you, Joel, and there's stuff that I blurp out or I pick up and I feed back without any much trace of ego or me needing to be right or me needing security, right? Or, or approval. I like Jim Detmer's definition on that one. But if I can cancel that out as much as possible and get really absorbed in you, that's where extraordinary coaching takes place. And that intuitive state requires courage. It requires non-attachment to outcome. It often requires a sense of lightness and ease and fun. And to get coaches to access those states, that's a big part of our coaching training. It's not about all the ninja moves, right? Or the, the, the 50 powerful questions or the, these are important, right? Form is not unimportant, but the foundation is, um, how do we get our coaches to be able to access those types of concentration states, which the more and more absorbed you get, the less and less self is present. Up until you, start saying things it's like i don't know where that came from joel but that was just what had to be spoken right now i don't hit that right sometimes i laugh at brian's like yeah, we probably hit that about 30 to 50 percent of the time but and the rest of the time we'll say stuff that is still really colored by our own personality so forgive us for that right we just tell our clients right we say listen the fastest way to work together is if we just agree to be both intuitive, unfiltered, and we just move very fast. Would that be okay for you? It doesn't mean everything we're gonna say is brilliant or insightful, but then we can really team up and move very fast. And, and a lot of these founders get very excited about that. I was gonna ask, yeah, people people resonate with that. Cause you know, there's also a lot of people who are like, not like, help me be a better person. I want your tools, you know, I wanna hack how I can, you know, win this game. What is this like intuitive thing? What's that? You know, that just sounds like, what are we going to, what am I going to get there basically? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's a good point, Joel, because especially with the founders, you do need to be pragmatic as well. You can't just hang out too much in just that, that space. They also, I mean, sometimes they come on the call and say, listen, I have this guy who wants to leave the company. I need a strategy to pull him back in, right? Or I need to set up one-on-ones. I've never done that before in a proper way. Do you have some tips? Yes, of course. We have our, our tips and tricks or people are scared of me, right? Psychological safety is a big issue in, uh, in founders in, in India. People are scared, right? There's a, a power mm -hmm. distance and therefore they become less creative, innovative, of course, we work and we have particular tips and tricks and what has worked for other founders. You know, we've worked with over 150 founders now in India and Southeast Asia. So we have a good database. 
But I wouldn't bucket that as the transformational work we do. It's important, and they sometimes in the beginning, they need to feel like, oh, this was really useful, and I have some stuff to work on. But we also know that well, we'll get to some other deeper work eventually, right? And, and we often laugh because when we ask founders in the beginning, they say, what do you want to work on? I want to build a high-performing team. I want to learn how to delegate more effectively, right, in time management. I say, okay, all right, that's, that's fine. We always know it's not really what they need. I mean, there are symptoms often, right? But um, so finding that balance between satisfying that particular mind and consciousness to some extent, but also creating the opportunity to go much deeper um, yeah, when needed. That, that is yeah. important. Uh, yeah, it's really fascinating to me. I, I'm basically like so resonant with, and people listening to this podcast will, I imagine, also be. Uh, this is something we've explored, and it's, I'm so I'm really wholeheartedly like, um, what's the word? Like enthusiastic that you care about this vibration so much because I I feel like that is where the transformation takes place, and um, um, and and you know this has been an exploration of mine too. You know, and in fact, we created a whole training program with coaches rising about this too, the power of presence. Yeah. Cause we, cause a lot of pe- people like Jim Deathmer and all these we were talking to we were like, they were saying the same thing. They were like, yeah, my best coaching is like, I'm just deeply attuned to my client. And, you know, so, so that, that feeling state of being so present and attuned that there's no self-consciousness on the, this part of the coach, you know, you're not, yeah. you're not like thinking about, oh, what should I do next? What should I say? Feeling any sense of, nervousness or need to perform or get anywhere there's just this like boom you know you can you're nodding i think you can you know that's that state where you're just completely tuned in and um i'd like to ask you in a moment about maybe how you how you teach those shifts um but but i want to say like yeah i've been in that inquiry too like how do you combine that kind of work with yeah some of the more practical things that 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 executives founders might need and also just to demonstrate that you're not like um, this weird, weird dude, you know, like, because uh, yeah. I think I've blown people out before in the past. Maybe not, you know, it's not the right way to put it, but it's like, maybe I've been a little bit um, eager and young with like, okay, now we're going to drop deep into presence and the other person's <laughs> nervous system is just getting blown out. And I'm, act- I'm actually projecting on them a little bit my, yeah. my desire to to go deep and actually um yeah. so i've ref- i've kind of refined my approach with it these days but i'm i'm curious like how how do you teach uh coaches to kind of i love that you talk about that like to 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 move out of self and into this these states yeah that's a great question and this is this constant dance right i mean the buddha would call this upaya right this is a great word in sanskrit called skillful means meaning adjusting the the right medicine to the right person right so knowing what what uh, because again i mean i i had a com- first conversation with a founder a few days ago and by quickly tuning in i realized this this guy will need to feel that this has real practical pragmatic value instantly for him so yeah i don't just go straight into you know let's you know, let's do some mindful breathing. And let's say, no, this guy first needs to feel that, you know, these are the guys that can 
have credibility and can really help me and this and that. And so it's that, that sensitivity, but actually that sensitivity is also a result of being really absorbed in your client. Exactly. Yeah, right? It's not something that is a fixed ratio or something, and it even changes per conversation. So you might in that first check-in, like the internal weather report, I might pick up from a client you know, maybe beforehand, I got really excited to do some deep transformational work. But in the internal weather report, I realized this guy is so occupied with this one tactical piece that he needs to fix that unless I now just address it with him, right, quite pragmatically, uh, he won't have the mind space to go into this other domain, right? So it's is that adjusting and adapting uh, that is really crucial. Yeah, so that's also part of our, our coach training. I mean, we, one of the ways we train this is, I mean, to put it very simply, every conversation, even the one you and I are just having now, Joel, has two conversations. There's a verbal conversation, there's a vibrational conversation. And that vibrational conversation has all the feeling tone, the nuances, all this stuff that's happening beyond the, the verbal. And if you look at the science, that vibrational component of, of a conversation has the biggest impact of conversations, right? So after, after our conversation finishes, you and I will mostly remember the feeling tone of the conversation and how we felt about a conversation. And over time, that effect only increases. So if I ask you in three weeks' time, Joel, how is this podcast with this other person? You will mostly remember how you felt about the podcast, not actually what was being said in the podcast. And this is very important to realize. Even from a leadership point of view, this is huge, right? So when I explain this to founders, I said, if you have a meeting with your direct report or with your board, remember, vibration is what has the biggest impact and lingers on the longest. So I often ask leaders, before you go into a conversation, decide for yourself what's the vibration you want to bring into this meeting. And how do you want people to feel at the end of the meeting? Most leaders prepare conversation at the verbal level. What am I going to say? What am I going to discuss? They don't prepare conversations at the vibrational level. And it takes a few seconds. I can just say, listen, what's the vibration? I need to fire somebody or I need to hold somebody accountable. Instead of, and most of us just prepare, what am I going to say, right? What's the script? What's the this and that? And I always ask, what's the vibration you want to bring in? Is that contracted and feeling angry or frustrated? Or do you want to bring a more expanded feeling to it, one of genuine care but candor? perhaps disappointment, but in an expanded way. So this is really important, both for our own coaches to learn, like what's the right vibration to bring in for this client, but also for our leaders. It's actually a very simple model, right? It doesn't have to be too complicated. It's just what's the vibrational tone you want to bring in and how do you want people to feel at the end? So starting a conversation and finishing a conversation is incredibly important for the vibrational impact. And a lot of leaders are not very conscious of that. 
right? They just project also because they're back-to-back, -back, right? So they're back-to-back -back meetings, so they take the emotional residue of the last meeting and they unconsciously bring it over to the next meeting, right? So I had a tough conversation with a customer. I'm speaking with a direct report right after. And for some reason, I'm a bit more short with my employee, right? Or I'm a bit more direct. It's because I haven't really processed that earlier conversation, right? And this is why we invite the one minute of mindful breathing as well, right? Or three breaths already is great to recalibrate some of that residue and then just decide what vibration you choose to bring into the next meeting. Yeah. So I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I was wondering about how you invite people in coaches into, into yeah. like a more and more selfless state. And um, I was going to ask also, you know, presumably what you just said there about beginning and an ending a conversation you could apply that as a coach too, like yeah. taking a moment before you get on that call yeah. to tune into like what, what vibration might you want to bring into that call. Yeah. It's a really nice for me, like a let like framework or frame to apply. Cause I can immediately sense what it opens up. Yeah. 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 Two, two things there. So indeed opening a conversation, I'm always incredibly deliberate how I open a call with a client at the vibrational level. Because you're just another call on their calendar, right? And one thing I always want to make sure, Joel, is when clients see me on my calendar, they should get excited about that call, right? I'm very specific on that. That doesn't mean I need to be overly bubbly or overly like energetic, but I'm quite deliberate in terms of what's the vibe and I want to make sure it's expanded it's, it's generally one of lightness and ease. And let's have some fun together, vibration. And I think that, that resonates with a lot of clients. Now, and, and on a particular high as well, right? Um, I think exciting. Sometimes laughter is great. I mean, Brian, my teacher, he's this master of belly laughs. <laughs> like all the time with any client, it's just, and it just, releases the contraction in clients, right? So this lightness, this laughter, it's, I think you spent too much time in the Tibetan tradition, right? With all these, uh, these laughing uh, Dharma teachers there. Now, if you look at coach training, we do all kinds of exercises where people have to talk about things, right? Issues they are facing. And the other coaches only pick up vibration. So you actually cancel out almost the content of the verbal stuff and just listen you you listen in you listen actually with your full body right so it's not just with the ears it's like you have to get yourself in an expanded state else you cannot pick up vibrations right if you're contracted automatically you're not picking up vibrations well so the first step is to how do you get yourself in a receptive expanded state which is many different ways obviously yoga, meditation, whatever you need to do, or, but we have our coaches really get very clear about what their practice is to become a, you know, expanded before they go in. And then you just pick up vibrations for an entire conversation and you just verbalize that. Mm. That's the practice. I mean, it's just like, 
So people talk and there's one person who's just picking up the vibration over and over again. There's also a, this is an interesting one. We haven't done this at scale, Joel, but Brian is always convinced that working with extreme vibrations is a good training ground. Meaning he would say, I think we should get coaches to go to a mental hospital and pick up vibrations of extreme personality patterns, right? So go and feel what depressed really looks like. Go and feel what extreme anxiety disorder feels like. Go and feel what compulsive, you know, obsessive feels like. Not listen to it, but actually feel the, the, the tone, the nuance. And if you can pick it up in very extreme forms, you can start picking it up gradually at more nuanced forms. Right. So yeah, yeah. does this make sense? Yeah. Oh, to totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love, I love that idea. Like it's like, you know, tra training it like an art, you know, and um, I was on like one of the, the busiest shopping streets in Amsterdam yesterday. Oh. And I, I, uh, <laughs> good practice. I, I, ground. It was, it was cause I got on there, you know, first of all, with the pandemic, my, my nervous system's not like attuned to being in crowds again. And yeah. this, this particular street's also not very pleasant. And I felt a kind of disgust being there. Um, because there's also like a lot of kind of, I don't know, like shops selling sweets and burgers and it's kind of like oh, yeah. something, but that, so I was like, Oh, run away. And then I was like, no, okay, wait a minute. I'm just going to stand here and just, just sense this place. And so it, in a sense, it's like, it has a kind of almost like tantric element yeah. to it, you know, learning, learning to tune into a particular frequency and notice how I respond to, to being in that place. And, um, I, I like that kind of thing because I think it's, it behooves us to, to, to train our perceptivity and our, I, I just in, in general feel we're being called or I, I was like, I'll, I'm being called to access different modes of perception, you know, different types of perceiving. And, um, I'm just cu curious, like, um, this question keeps bubbling up. I just noticed. So what, um, you know, if you're training coaches to reflect back the vibration of the client, um, what what happens then? You know, like so this might this might be better for like your clients. You know, we've already talked about this somewhat, but just do you find that clients are say if they if you reflect back, oh, it seems like there's more contraction here, or you seem more contracted. Do they then you know often feel like oh yeah actually you're right uh, yeah actually now I'm just going to pause and oh there's something else there. Um, yeah, I'm feeling, I'm actually feeling a bit sad or, or anxious. I had this or stressed or something. So yeah. I'm just curious, like what the, the process is then, is it like, is it just about self-awareness or might you invite them into, you know, like a kind of, um, reflect uh, some kind of practice with their state? Yeah, definitely. Right. And a more somatic directive work, right? So where is that showing up? And how does this I mean, depending on our coaches, some are very experienced in that some are less, but obviously attention to the physical manifestation of that, where do you feel it? What? How does it manifest? Can you be with it without needing to change it? What is it teaching you? Any insights? What are? Can you allow it to be right? All that entire direction of, of work where you non judgmentally be with what's there. Yeah. but also uh, notice it 
and yeah, either be with body. I mean, this is where the mindfulness perspective, I mean, this is, I mean, again, I've been like almost 20 years in Thich Nhat Hanh's like Zen practice experience where you learn that a lot, right? Also being with different vibrations and being mindful, calming the mind uh, around all of that really comes into our coaching approach. Yeah. Yeah. Just the kind of being with rather than needing to change. Uh, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Glad I asked that question. Um, and I, I want to like, just before we conclude in a couple of minutes, um, I want to ask you like where we can find out more about your, you know, your trainings for coaches and whatever you want to point us towards. But um, what's this question? It's like, feels like we need a part two in a way, because I'm, I'm imagining there's a lot more we could talk about with coaching founders, but what, what is inspiring you at the moment? You know, like what, what, what sources are you going to, to develop yourself as a coach that you might point others towards as well? Yeah. It could be books, Great. trainings, and, and teachers, anything really like being in nature, whatever like comes to mind. Yeah. So those are two questions. I mean, the one big driver for me is, uh, again, I want to play a really big role with our organization and our coaches pool in basically relieving the suffering of a lot of founders who do amazing work and just need support to do that in a sustainable, conscious, wise way and not kill themselves in the process, right? I think that's a really big, and do that at scale in India and Southeast Asia. We're pretty specific on that. So that, that's what get, gets me out of bed every morning. Um, my own inspirations, I mean, I'm, and again, I just came back from, village in southern france one of the reasons for me to go back to europe is to be closer to plum village um so that is still my core practice um it was actually very moving i was just there and we were spreading tignatan's ashes actually he passed away in january right He's an incredible mm. teacher um and so that is the core practice and they, they have a great podcast as well the way out is in by one of the the monks that's a great one so buddhist psychology like tara brack jack cornfield those are great teachers for me um again vipassana is a great like sam harris really like so those are definitely inspiration sources i would also say nonviolent communication has been a major impact on my coaching as well as my own family life which we didn't talk much about, but uh, Marshall Rosenberg's work. Um, yeah, I think those are, and I mean, I'm now like developing a vegetable garden here in Belgium and going back to nature and the earth. And yeah, that is also, I think like many of us, right? Reconnecting with mother earth and uh, yeah, permaculture work. I realize there's so much we can get inspired by there. And it's so important. This is actually, I mean, this is another podcast, Joel, but I'm on a mission to make India also more ecologically conscious, mm. right? Because that is actually not so alive in India as it is in Europe, right? It's because uh, often poverty reduction is still a bigger topic, perhaps rightfully so, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the environmental consciousness, right? And the oneness with nature and the deep ecology work is really in its infancy, I would say. Um, 
and uh, yeah, that's something I'm committed to uh, skillfully introduce there. Yeah. Mm. I think ecology is is a really beautiful word and is a whole other podcast. You know, like I've been thinking about that as well. And um, also, I must admit, being influenced by some of the people I follow, like Benita Roy, Lehman Pascal, talking about you know any uh, f- any kind of spiritual practice right now with the need for that to have an like an, an ecology yeah. to be influenced by ecology and to even the, the the sense of who we are fundamental sense of identity beginning to shift now with new kind of worldviews coming in uh, one where we we are ecological beings you know we yeah. we reorient our place from this anthropocentric you know, like humans at the top of the pyramid kind of place to to something more animistic, perhaps. And I think that's so. So that's what when you said being in the vegetable garden, like actually, I would love for a coaching school to start to bring those kinds of practices into coach training and for founders too. You know, not not from a not from a kind of like seventies kind of hippie ideal, but more from like cultivating those kinds of 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 uh relationships you know immediate phenomenological phenomenological kind of relationships with our environment and how that will impact who we are how we interact with others and the the businesses we create so yeah, yeah anyway i i yeah my last thing i want to say about that i just spent some time on friday with satish kumar i don't know if you know him he, he set up schumacher college right Absolutely. and he was speaking yeah. here in belgium and he was giving a talk last Friday and he said something, he said, every economist needs to be an ecologist. And, right? and I also think every coach perhaps needs to be an ecologist right? these days if we talk about this. And, and how can we bring in that level of consciousness in our coaching? Because yeah, obviously we need all the help we can get, right? And especially these founders, they will be the game changers of tomorrow. So, yeah. That's what I'm committed to. Yeah, uh, Gaston, this has been really a uh, fascinating conversation for me, really uh, rich, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. You know, I really feel your your dedication to your practice and your sincerity of of your work, you know, like the, the work you do and what you care about shines through. So thanks so much. And I, I do want to say, like, where can we find out more about the Asian Leadership Institute and what you guys do? Sure, asianleadership.com. That's our website. Most of the information is there. Uh, again, we are currently building a quote-unquote army of consciousness coaches because there's a lot of need in this market as well. So, uh, yeah, always open to, uh, to connect with, uh, with coaches that resonate with our mission. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. Just a quick heads up, if you would like to join our online coach training called the Neuroscience of Change, it's all about how do you apply the latest thinking and the best thinking from the field of neuroscience into your work as a coach in a very practical way, then enrollment is now open until the 28th of September this year, that's 2022. There is an incredible faculty, Amanda Blake, John Viveki, Dan Siegel, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Richard Biazis and others. And you can find out more by heading to coachesrising.com forward slash neuroscience of change. Just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.